The text for this service is taken from 1 Timothy 4, the verses 6 through 10. Let's read that together. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has a value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. After the sermon, we will sing from hymn 24, the stanzas 5 and 7. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, Paul's letter to Timothy are full of instruction for office bearers. And since today we have the ordination of elders and deacons, it is, or elders and a deacon, it is only fitting that we choose a text from one of those letters. However, you may wonder about the the text I chose. For in the text, Paul addresses Timothy directly as a minister of Jesus Christ. A minister of the word has a special task, as Paul also outlines throughout his letters. A minister of the word is to preach the word. That's one of his main tasks. It's not the task of an elder. However, please understand what the term minister means. It means servant. In that sense, this text refers to all of us, to all of you in the pews as well. We are all servants of God, and we are all servants of each other. But indeed, there are those who have been given a special task in the church. The minister has but so have the elders and the deacons. The task of an elder is, as it says in the form for the ordination, to have supervision over Christ's church. And the task of the deacon is to show mercy to the needy. The text of this morning can fittingly be applied to these office bearers and also to all of us. These office bearers, like Timothy, are servants with a special task. And in this text, Paul gives instruction for these special servants. I will preach to you about the requirements to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That is the theme. And then we will see three things. An office bearer requires, first of all, proper nutrition. Secondly, regular spiritual exercise. And thirdly, firm hope in the Savior of the world. So then the theme is... the requirements to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And then, first of all, an office bearer requires proper nutrition. Paul writes this letter to Timothy, 
with whom we had developed a special relationship. Paul frequently spoke of himself as Timothy's father and of Timothy as his son. Of course, Paul was not his physical father, but his spiritual father. Paul got to know Timothy on his second missionary journey when he returned to Lystra, where Timothy was a citizen. According to Acts 16, verse 1, Timothy's father was a Gentile and his mother a Jew. His father was not a believer, but his mother and his grandmother were devout people who knew the Old Testament scriptures well and who were converted, likely as a result of Paul's visit to Lystra on his first missionary journey. And these godly women instructed Timothy from his childhood and were very influential in his upbringing. It is clear from the book of Acts and Paul's letters to Timothy that Paul and Timothy really clicked together. Paul very much appreciated Timothy and so did many other people. Timothy, although somewhat timid, was a popular man. And so Paul enlists him as his co-worker and eventually makes him his representative in the various churches. And that is why Paul writes to him in Ephesus where he had left him behind. During his second missionary journey, Paul was in Ephesus for three years. As is clear from his letter to the Ephesians, that congregation is very dear to him. He loved the people there. The gospel of salvation had made a great impact on them. But he also knew that Satan would not just let these people go from his grip. Satan never does. He is always busy trying to break up God's church. And he does that especially with new converts. Satan knows that they especially are prone to fall back into their former way of life and into their former way of thinking. He had them in his grip once, and he can do it again. So the devil thinks. And Paul was very aware of that. He knew that the church and the members would be under attack, not only from without, but especially from within. And the latter, the attack from within, is the most dangerous attack. For it is within the church that he can disguise himself as an angel of light. And so he warns the Ephesians. Listen to what he said to the Ephesian elders during his famous farewell address as recorded in Acts 20. First, he reminded the elders of the wonderful task that they had been given in the church of God. But, And so he also begins by giving them the charge, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. But then he comes with his warning. He says further in the verses 29 and 30, I know that after I leave, selfish wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And that's also what happened. 
false prophets came into their midst. They even came from the very elders Paul was addressing during his farewell address. Now, who are these false prophets? And what, in what way were they false prophets? Well, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the root of all heresy is human pride. That was the basic sin of Adam and Eve, and that has been the problem ever since. Adam and Eve were two proud individuals, and they wanted to be able to boast of their own accomplishment. And they wanted to have some of the honor and glory of God independently from Him. And they wanted to be like God, and they did not want to depend on Him alone for their well-being and their salvation. And they wanted to have power beyond the power that had been given to them by God. And they wanted to be able to direct their own lives. And it is that sin of pride that we as human beings go back to time and again. And you see, that's also what happened here in the church at Ephesus. These false prophets taught that you could have a role in your own salvation by adding to the law of God. Just like the Pharisees, these heretics wanted to be admired for their good works. And they wanted everybody to see how they stood out from the rest of them because of their good works and because of their piety. And so they taught that the way to God was through an ascetic and disciplined lifestyle. And so one of the things they said to them is that people shouldn't get married. A God person, so they argued, is able to keep his or her sexual feelings to him or herself. You don't need a marriage partner. Discipline yourself. They were, they were well aware that not everybody was able or willing to go down the road of celibacy. But you see, these men, they also counted on that. Because that showed them up to be more pious than the others. For they were able to deny the feelings of the flesh. Look at us. Look at how good we are. We are a little bit better than the rest of you. Doesn't that show from our superior lifestyle? And they also extended that kind of thinking to the kinds of food that people would eat. They taught that certain foods should be abstained from. And they wanted to go back to the Old Testament laws, not realizing the freedom that they have gained through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul clearly states to Timothy that he should not go along with that kind of doctrine. It's not biblical. It's not what God says to you in his word. These people, Paul, are adding to God's word. And they're doing that for their own selfish reasons. Paul deals with this same issue in letters to other congregations as well. And there Paul calls these people who restrict the freedom of Christians weak in their faith. 
Paul says to Timothy that everything that God has created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Because God's gifts, the gift of food and drink and the gift of marriage, including sexuality within marriage, is is consecrated by the word of God. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, let's not think that this kind of thinking was encountered only during Paul's days. We find some of that thinking amongst us as well, even amongst our own members. And I'm not pointing any fingers at any person. I'm pointing it at myself as well. We all have that same tendency to restrict where we should not. To add to the laws of God where we should not. And some people, they especially want to do that. They will come with rules that have not been legislated by God himself. And they become legalistic. And they do that because they want to show off their piety. And they want to stand out from the rest of the crowd so that they can be admired. Look at me. I'm a little bit better than you. What is significant, though, is that because they are rules people, they will be very strict about the rules of their own making, but other biblical rules they will be very relaxed about. There are also those who are drawn to evangelical preaching that caters to the individual and that caters to man's piety. They like to hear sermons that appeal to people's feelings and their ability to do good and be good. That makes them feel good. That makes them feel that they too can add something to their own salvation. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing new under the sun. The sin of Adam and Eve is alive within us as well. Don't think, of course, that there are no rules to be kept. Sure, there are. And the Bible clearly outlines that. We have to fight against the sinful desires of the flesh. And through all his letters, Paul teaches us about what those sinful desires are, such as sexual immorality, slandering other people, being greedy, enriching yourself unlawfully. And so the list goes on and on. But, says Paul, don't add to these things. And don't embellish these rules, making more of them than you should. And what is most important, keep the rules for the right reasons. Don't keep them and teach them to others in order to elevate yourself. Don't present yourself as being better than others. That is very important for an office bearer to remember. And do these things out of thankfulness. Out of thankfulness for the redemption that you have received through your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A Christian is humble. An office bearer must model humility to others. He must not try to show off how good 
and how smart and how well behaved he is. But he must try to show off how wonderful, how great God is. A good office bearer will want to give the glory to God. And so, how do you change your own attitude and the attitude of others? Well, there's only one thing that Timothy can do about this. Paul says that if you go against that kind of thinking, if you point these things out to the brothers, then you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. When he speaks about being brought up in the truths of the faith, then he is actually speaking about being nourished in the good faith. That is also how other translations, such as the RS3 and the King James versions, have it. And note well, first of all, that Paul is speaking here about the brothers. He calls them brothers. We're used to that kind of terminology, aren't we? We use it all the time. We call each other brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we do that because the Bible has taught us to speak about each other in that way. We have learned that we have our Father in heaven and that we are children of the Father, which makes us brothers and sisters. However, for us it has become somewhat of a well-worn phrase. We're used to it. Even the world has taken it over. They like it. But that's also what secular union members call each other. Union members have abused this terminology by also calling each other brothers and sisters. Their unity, however, is not because they confess to have the same Father in heaven. But for the recipients, for the recipients of Paul's letters, this terminology is something new, unique. They're not used to it. They didn't think of their relationship with the Almighty God and themselves as a relationship of a father and his children. And so it is a beautiful image. We should reclaim it time and again. Timothy, Paul wants them to embrace that terminology. And it is something they also do embrace. Timothy as well. These men and women there in Ephesus, he says to Timothy, they are your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Because of your Father in heaven, you are one with him. And that has tremendous implications as to the way you treat each other. And therefore, you're also able to bear with one another your shortcomings. And your sins. And you are able to point these things out because you love each other. And that is what Timothy has to do. He has to point them out. He has to point out the false teachings. But he must do that with gentleness and concern in the full realization that he is dealing here with precious members of God's household. That's something we as office bearers always must remember. And that means that you're also patient with one another. That you love one another. 
For that reason, you also sit around the Lord's Supper table with one another. That is beautiful significance to have that. And in a few weeks, we will also do that. That's a wonderful thing to show that kind of unity. That's what God teaches us to do. For in this way, you also express the unity, the brotherhood. You express that you belong together, that you love each other. Even though you may be different from another person, you may think a little bit different about this or that, you all want to submit yourself to God's word, and you believe, and that makes you one. Timothy is also supposed to nourish these people in Ephesus. He has to nourish them with the most pure food there is, namely the word of God. Don't serve them junk food, says Paul. Don't cater to what they want to hear, but what they must hear. Come with the complete gospel of salvation. And if you feed them with that precious food, then they will also be able to nourish one another. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, that requires knowledge. It requires knowledge on the part of the office bearers, but also on the part of the people themselves. If you want to feed one another, then you have to be well-versed in the Scriptures. I will say something more about that this afternoon when we deal with the will of God. But let me repeat a little bit of what I will say in this afternoon's sermon, for it needs reinforcement. If you want to have a stress-free and happy life, if you want to have joy in your life and you want to be able to spread that around, if you want to bring peace, and then you can only accomplish that if you stick to your principles as based on the Word of God. And that means constant study. That means that you have to regularly meditate on God's Word. That means that you should be well-versed in the Scriptures. You should know, know what it means to be biblical. Paul rebukes those false teachers who come with godless myths and old wives' tales. It's not important for us to know exactly what those godless myths and wives' tales were. They're often embellishments of Old Testament stories. And they included the personal opinions of the false prophets. Again, those stories were told in order to draw attention to these raconteurs. They wanted to be admired for their wisdom and their wits. But instead, they let others astray. Elders are supposed to supervise the minister and the congregation. That means that they have to give advice. But... Advice is no good if it's not biblical advice. An elder should not come with his own opinion. That means that an elder and a deacon also has to know what it is to be reformed. To be reformed means to be purely biblical. It means that you go time and again back to the Word of God. There are a lot of good Christian books out there. Also, good books written by non-reformed authors. And many of you read those books. And there are a lot of things indeed that we can learn from them. I have as well. But be careful. 
Many of these authors will, authors will in one way or the other give a role to man in his own salvation. And that is the beauty of the Reformed faith. We do not want to do that, even though we fall into that sin. But the Reformed doctrine is that that is impossible. You cannot add anything to your salvation. Time and again we have to go back to that truth. And in many of those books, they do not teach you sufficiently about the total depravity of man and of his inability to do any good. They see some basic good in man. And therefore, they also see in man the ability to initiate their own regeneration. That's a very dangerous road to go down on, and it's not biblical. With this kind of teaching, they want you to share in the glory of God, and they do not do justice to the sovereignty of God. And that brings me to the second point, namely that an office bearer requires a regular spiritual exercise. As I said, Paul was in Ephesus for three years. Now, Ephesus was one of the larger cities in the Roman Empire and had one of the biggest theaters The theater in Ephesus, which, as I saw with my own eyes last year, is still in existence today. It could hold up to 25,000 spectators. And in that theater, often food races would be held. And there's no doubt that Paul would also have observed that. Paul knew quite a bit about exercise. Not only did he observe how athletes trained, But he was somewhat of an athlete himself. Although he would not have been an Olympic athlete, he nevertheless was a very well-conditioned man. That is obvious from the fact that he traveled all over the Roman Empire by foot. His physical conditioning would have been excellent. He knew how important it is to be physically fit. You could not do the kind of work that Paul did if you weren't. And so physical exercise is very important. You have to look after your physical well-being. It will make make you more productive and it will give you a longer life. But, says Paul, there is something much more important than physical exercise and that is spiritual exercise. Spiritual exercise, first of all, refers to the kind of lifestyle that you lead. An office bearer has to be an example to the flock. He has to be self-disciplined. That is why elsewhere in his letter to Timothy in chapter 3, he gives the various qualifications for office bearers. He says that an overseer must be above reproach. He must be temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. And then comes one of the most important qualifications, for he repeats it twice. He says that he must manage his own family well. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And he mentions that also in connection with the deacon. 
And he gives some of the same qualifications for deacons. He says that deacons must be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. And Paul, of course, knows that there is not an office bearer on earth that is able to fulfill these qualifications to the letter. They will be lacking in every way. I certainly know that I do. But what he means is that it must be obvious from these men that these kinds of ideals are important to them. That that is what they strive for in their own lives. Spiritual exercise. Paul is not exhaustive in the list that he gives in his letters to Timothy and Titus elsewhere in Scripture, we find other qualifications. For example, Peter says that an office bearer must not be domineering, and he must be able to listen well. And so there are many other qualifications. What it all comes down to is this. They must not put themselves into the center, into the foreground, and their own fleshly desires, but they must put God into the center. They must want to give glory to God in everything. And that is very difficult for us to do. For by nature, we are self-centered creatures. And by nature, we want the honor and the glory. We want recognition in one way or the other. Well, the life of a Christian is the life of self-denial. The wonderful thing about the way that God has created us, created us is that the more we deny our own selfish inclinations and reach out to God and reach out to others, the happier we will be. And that also applies to office bearers in their office. The more you serve, the more you will also receive. The more that you deny yourself, the more that will also be given to you, first of all by God and also by others, for then they will praise you for your selflessness, for your service, for your kindness, for your gentleness. They will praise you even though you will have failed at times in those qualities even though they know that you are far from perfect, for they will see God working through you nevertheless. And because of you, they will give glory to God. And again, that's what it's all about, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. Brothers and sisters, fellow servants of the Lord, we have to put our hope in God for everything. We come to the third point. He is the only one we can depend on to give us what we need, for he is the God of our salvation. We have to understand the full implication of that statement. For you see, that is what drives us. That is what drives us in our service. We are in service of God, of the God of our salvation. He is the almighty creator of the world and also the recreator of the world. And he is going to bring this world to a glorious end. And we, all of us, may be part of that glorious plan of salvation of the world. 
That salvation came through Jesus Christ who died on the cross so that sin and evil and everything tainted by sin and evil could be totally eradicated. That is the plan of God. Isn't it wonderful to be part of that plan? And all of us, and especially the office bearers, may be instruments in God's hands to proclaim that wonderful victory over sin and evil. They may tell that to that down and out brother or sister in the Lord who is mourning because of the loss of a loved one, or who has financial difficulties or other difficulties. They may tell them that their hope is in the Almighty Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth. And then the office bearer can help them refocus. For as the text says, he is the Savior, especially of those who believe. You can help them put it all into perspective. Even though there are not many answers always, nevertheless, you can put your hope in God. Whatever they have here on earth or whatever they have lost here on earth isn't all that important in the final scheme of things. You can tell them that they are going to inherit this world. They may be vice regents with God. God is going to bring not only this world to a glorious hand, but also all those who belong to him. They are going to reign with him forever and ever on this glorified earth where heaven and earth will come together. That's our hope. That's the message we may bring. What a wonderful thing it is to be an office bearer in the church of God. Oh sure, this text also says that he is the savior of all men. You may wonder about that, no doubt you do. Well, don't think that that means that all men will be saved. That's not what Paul is saying. For it's clear from the scriptures that that's not the case. Those who do not believe will perish. And so when Paul says that he is the Savior of all men, he does not mean that all men will come to that same glorious end as the believers will come to. The original readers of this letter understood exactly what Paul meant. For the word salvation has a broader connotation than the word has for us. It also has the sense of deliverance. God is the deliverer of men in many senses. He, for example, delivered Israel out of Egypt. But that did not mean that all those people who were rescued from Egypt would be rescued from their sins. Think of those who died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Many of them did not see their ultimate salvation, even though they were delivered out of Egypt. Also think about what happens today. He rescues men all the time. He also gives food and drink and healing to unbelievers. Without God's involvement in this way, man would perish right now. And he gives these things to all men so that they may come to repentance and so that they can give glory to God. But if they don't, then they will not see their final deliverance or salvation. They will perish. It is only the believer who will be saved. And that, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, is the glorious message for all of us this morning. 
and especially the glorious message for these respective office bearers, prospective office bearers. It is through faith that you are saved. And that faith is a gift of God. He has given that gift to you. And now use it, brothers and sisters. Use it, brother office bearers. Put your hope in God. And the Lord will bless you. He will bless all of you. And he will bless those office bearers about to be ordained. To God be the glory alone. Amen.